The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, Enhancing Student Excellence. Good morning. My name is Judy Nouveau, and I'm the Director of Community Relations for Santa Monica College. This is not my job to introduce our speaker today, but our introducer is slightly delayed, so we're going to go ahead. Thank you for being here today. We're really glad to have you, and we're particularly glad to have Dr. Craig Moyer with us from Western Washington University. The title of his talk is up there. And what I do not possess is his long and lengthy CV, which I would otherwise tell you about. So rather than my fumbling around, what we're going to do is have Dr. Moyer tell you himself what his background is and let him get started. So please welcome Dr. Moyer. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. And oh, my, what wonderful weather. Uh, It's been great. Uh, let's see, yeah, where, how did I start up? That was the question posed to me. And, uh, you know, and I don't even think it, uh, it has it on my CV, but I actually started out at Central Oregon Community College uh, for my first uh, year. Uh, and then I went to Oregon State University uh, where I got my bachelor's degree in uh, marine biology. Uh, I stayed on there. I, I really enjoyed marine biology, but I didn't see a lot of job opportunities in that. So I went into microbiology, which seemed a little more uh, have to have more prospects, at, at least at that time. And, and certainly nowadays in, in uh, the healthcare side of things, uh, uh, pathogenic microbiology is still, I would say, a booming front. Uh, but anyway, I uh, did a master's degree there uh, and really found a passion for oceanography. So I went from uh, uh, the Pacific Northwest out to uh, University of Hawaii uh, and worked uh, on, I wanted to work on uh, hydrothermal vents of all places. And as you can see, that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about today. But had the uh, opportunity to uh, spend a few years uh, studying a different hydrothermal vent system, but very well. Uh, and that led me on to postdoctoral work. I uh, spent a couple of years in Michigan, so I sort of bounced back and forth a little bit there. Uh, and then the last 15 years, I've been at Western Washington University. Uh, which has been uh, a great pleasure. Uh, it's, a, it's a small regional university, uh, but I'm still able to get out and, and participate in some of the active uh, scientific uh, projects like the one I'm going to talk about today. So uh, I also have to give a plug that uh, this, uh, yeah, brought to you by, it's, I feel like a commercial here, but, uh, but uh, this lecture is also brought to you by uh, the folks at Ocean Leadership and the uh, Integrated Ocean Drilling Program. Uh, I, I want to point out that, yeah, drilling isn't always a bad word. Uh, some good things come from it, and I would, I would even say some really good science comes from it. So with that, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, one of the projects that I was uh, fortunate enough to be involved with. Uh, this started a couple of years ago, and it was basically out near Japan in the Okinawa Trough. Uh, here we are, there's Okinawa, just to show, uh, you know, for scale. And what this was, was really the first time uh, that a hydrothermal vent system had had the modern uh, ocean drilling tools uh, uh, used to study it. 
Uh, so in other words, we went out to a very well-known, very well-studied for a number of years, so we, we knew what the chemistry, we thought we knew what the microbiology was to uh, what we were getting into. Turns out we, we, it was very different than what we anticipated, so um, more on that to come. Uh, but yeah, we had this opportunity to get out on this uh, 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 fantastic uh, drilling ship called the GQ, and I'll show you a little bit about that at the end. But the GQ is really one of the one of the largest uh, oceanographic vessels uh, on the planet, really, uh, and it's a uh, fantastic uh, platform in order to do uh, ocean drilling. So there we go, um, and. Before I really dive in and, and talk a lot about the microbiology, I also want to point out a little bit about the geology because uh, hydrothermal vents were discovered back in the late 70s. So we've known about hydrothermal vents for a while now. Uh, it was actually a surprise. They didn't anticipate them being there back then. Now it seems like, oh, we hear about oh, all the activity and the plate tectonics and all that going on. Uh, but one of the things that's happened is in the last 20 years or so is there's been a lot of research done on what is called uh, divergent plate boundaries. And so I always think of them as, as plates that grow and they spread apart like that. So where fresh magmas are being made. And as it turns out, because this is where the newest seafloor is made, this is also where the newest lavas are formed at. Um, it's also where the crust is the thinnest, and so because of that, uh, the, the lavas that come up from the magmas at those places are very homogeneous, okay? Uh, when I, I remember when I was a graduate student studying marine geology, and of course I'm a biologist by background, so it was a bit of a stretch, uh, but we look at a system like this, this is what's called a, a convergent plate boundary, where two plates are slamming into each other. Uh, the same thing is happening with, uh, with the Himalayas, for example. That's a, a convergent plate boundary that lifts those up. Well, at a convergent plate boundary, you get very old crust that's subducting down, and depending on the, the angle uh, that, the, that the crusts contact at, you get very different ages, you get very different types of geology and geochemistry so what that translates into is you get a very heterogeneous or a very uh, really mishmash, if you will, of different types of, of geology that's going down, being melted in this big convection cell, and that's coming back up, forming these types of volcanoes. And so turned what, what we didn't know, what, what I had hypothesized when we first started working in and around these uh, uh, convergent plate boundaries is, is that we would find a greater diversity of microorganisms. And that's really what I'm going to lead into, that, that we did indeed find that. But I just wanted to lay the groundwork. That's really the reason why. It's because our planet is so much more complex on these kinds of plate boundaries uh, that you see here. You, know, you can see it's a very busy slide. There's a lot going on there. But really what that does is that translates into a broad array of chemical types, which then uh, translates into a broad array or a great diversity of microbiological types. Okay, so why did we wind up going to this uh, IAEA North uh, this is the Okinawa Trough, which is a back arc basin, again, 
of a uh, convergent plate boundary. Why? Well, here's our vent system up here. And really the reason why was because it was very high in CO2 and it was very hot, I'm sorry, CO2 down here and methane over here. So we knew that there was a lot of both reduced and oxidized carbons to be had. So we really went out there thinking about carbon cycling and things like methanogens and heterotrophs, uh, uh, those kinds of microorganisms that could take advantage of this broad array of carbon types. Turns out, not so much, and, and I'll tell you more on that. It never does, I, I do have to say, it never does cease to amaze me. When we do have hypotheses, we do go out there, and it seems like, boy, we have a lot of lessons to still learn. So a lot of people think, oh, we know so much about science. I would say, well, at least in my job, I haven't been able to get it right yet. I've still got a lot of work to do, so I guess that's a good thing. Uh, here's a, uh, what we call a bathymetric map. It's like a topographic map of the area where we did our drilling. So here's a, a 3D view up here, and these little green uh, wedges or, uh, or uh, little bars are there. That represents the relative scale of the holes that we were able to drill uh, using the GQ and the samples that we were able to recover. One of the things I do want to point out, as you can see over here, we, we have it pretty well spread out. Uh, you can think of this being like the bullseye over here. This was the hottest part where the superheated water was coming out of this particular hydrothermal vent system. Off to either side, especially on this side, it's getting cooler and cooler and cooler. And that'll come in, play into the story in a little bit. All right, um, this is another map, or it's really a model of uh, hydrology or how the water is moving around in and about this particular hydrothermal vent system. And as a microbiologist, I can't claim that, that this is, these are not my data. These are really uh, the data of the geologists uh, and the geochemists. Uh, uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, when we go out there, we have a lot of different scientific interests. And so this is really coming from the, the fact that we have a, a multifaceted uh, array of scientists when we get to go to see and, and study these systems. But what this is telling us is that we have these layers that are very permeable. They're almost like a pumice layer. And then we have these layers of what's called cap rock up here, which are impermeable. And so what's happening is, is as this heat source sort of boils up the hydrothermal vent fluids, uh, it pulls in cold seawater to replace that from the edges. And so it turns out there's a lot, it's almost like a river flowing. When we drilled down there, we were actually getting what they call heat flow measurements, where they can measure the fluid flow of uh, meters per hour, which is nearly, you know, a river-type flow going on. We didn't anticipate that there would be that much fluid flow in these particular systems. And that also plays into the microbiological story, as we'll see in just a bit. Uh, I put this up here. Uh, this is really more of a generic slide, but it's, it demonstrates a lot of what I like to refer to as the metabolic menu. Uh, when we go out and study microorganisms, I'm primarily interested in what are called chemo, it's a mouthful, chemolitho, uh, autotrophic, 
Uh, yeah, there's, yeah, it is a mouthful. Basically, what they do is they have to work for a living. They don't uh, use organic carbon like we do right off the bat. They have to make their own. And so what they're able to do is use a lot of the reduced inorganic compounds like we see up here. Uh, and this is really, I just put this up here. This is like the menu that the microbes can choose from. But they, but they use those in order to be able to make ATP, in order to grow, in order to multiply the cells and do all of that. That's where their energy is coming from. Okay, and so you can see there's a lot, yeah, the menu is pretty large uh, in and around hydrothermal vent systems. And especially so in these back arc convergent plate boundary type systems. Uh, I like to, yeah, this again, this is our metabolic menu. And this just shows what some of the, oh, redox couples. Uh, hopefully some of you know a little bit about chemistry, maybe. But uh, redox is one of the things you study in chemistry. And it's really the transfer of energy from one molecule to another. And the energy is in the form of electrons. So really we're talking about just like, you know, if you were hook a battery up to something. The electrons, you need to have those electrons in order to make the bacteria happy. Like this guy up here, if we have uh, high energy to low energy, uh, that's why it says fuels or oxidants over here, uh, he's a happy guy. If it's about even, eh, he's not really very happy right there. And if it's uphill, uh, he's pretty much dead or soon to be. Uh, and it turns out one of the microorganisms that we study the most in my laboratory and that we found to be very abundant uh, across a number of hydrothermal vent systems are what are termed iron oxidizing. So they take reduced iron and make it into oxidized iron. Uh, and you can see that is pretty close to even. So I like to refer to these bacteria as the blue-collar bacteria. They really have to work for it. They have to process. This would be kind of like uh, if you had a, a diet of only rice. You would have to eat a lot more rice uh, to get the same calories uh, than if you were eating Snicker bars or ice cream or something like that. And uh, anyhow, so that's what these guys are doing. It's a very low energy couple. So they have to process a lot of material. And, in the, and while they're doing that, they make these uh, uh, iron microbial mats, which I'll show you a picture of in just a bit. Okay, so that brings us up to a little bit about, uh, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the microbiology and why we study the microbiology and how we do it a little bit differently nowadays. Uh, basically, traditional microbiology revolved around this notion of going out and being able to culture everything being able to uh, get them to grow in the lab and being able to get them to grow by themselves. So not in a community, but just a single population of bacteria, if you will. Well, that's very problematic because it's very hard for us to reproduce all the conditions necessary to get all the different types of bacteria in the world around us. Uh, there's really been a revolution in the past oh, 10, 15, 20 years where we now understand that the diversity of the microorganisms is really high, just in the world around us up here in the, in the photic zone. Uh, but what this, what this tells us then is that that's not the only way we can study microorganisms. We have to use some other tools. And luckily, in the last uh, couple decades, uh, molecular biology has come along and really helped us out giving us some new tools in order to go after those kinds of questions. So that's basically what I'm talking about in here. 
Uh, the other problem is, is most medias that are used are very nutrient rich. So if you want to go after a microorganism that has to work for a living, for example, um, it's, they're not going to be selected for in these really rich medias that are what we call copiotrophic or they grow weedy bacteria. So that's something we need to try to stay away from when we're trying to grow them as well. And then finally, one of the tools, at least, that I like to use are what are called small subunit, I know that's a SSU, uh, ribosomal RNAs, or their genes. Um, these are a great tool uh, for someone trying to do, basically take the census uh, of microbial communities and someone who's interested in how they're related to each other. You know, we call that genealogy when we're talking about humans. We like to gussy it up and call it molecular phylogeny when we're talking, you know, about microorganisms anyway. Uh, but this particular gene is really nice. Uh, and it allows us to uh, be able to, to uh, use them like name tags. Uh, really, it's more like I like to use the analogy of, uh, you know, when you go to the store and you see the little barcodes. Uh, ribosomal genes are perfect for that. They, they work very much like barcodes. They contain a lot of information in a little bitty space. Uh, so they're really great for that reason. Uh, so what that does is that has really allowed us to understand a lot more about this diversity that I was talking about that's going on out in the environment around us. And now we really have this idea of, you know, we have uh, on the order of tens of thousands of microorganisms in culture. Uh, the problem is, is that when we go out and use the molecular tools out in the world around us, we get very little crossover in this space here. We're getting better, uh, but we're still only at maybe 1%. So that's not great. We've got a ways to go. Uh, uh, but that's one of my jobs as a microbial ecologist, I feel like, is try to enlarge this space to make these different sets overlap better so that we have a better understanding of not just the genetics of the system out there, but we can also study uh, the physiology or try to understand how they're affecting the geochemical cycles uh, in the world around us. That's what really is at the core of what it is I'm trying to do. Okay. And then also, oh, here's a, here's a sort of a quick uh, laundry list of why I also like ribosomal RNAs. Again, I mentioned they're like the little barcodes. Uh, this is because, yeah, they're found in all living organisms. They're an integral part of a protein synthesis machinery in every living organism. So we get to compare apples with apples. Uh, if we use other genes, well, not everything has uh, all bi across all biology the same genes. And so then we're, we're a bit limited. Uh, so that's one nice thing about ribosomal genes. Uh, it also allows us to tackle this uh, problem of being dependent upon culturing everything. We consider this to be a culture-independent method. Uh, I, I, oh, here's a couple of more technical ones. Uh, they hold, really about ribosomal genes, holding that uh, information in them that indicates uh, what the ancestors were like. So we can understand a little bit about natural history of these different populations that's stored in that gene. It gives us clues. Um, the nice thing about it is you might hear about antibiotic resistance genes, for example. They get passed around like baseball cards between different bacteria. 
uh, we don't want genes like that because that doesn't tell us the history. Like, uh, you know, that gene could have transferred pa across last week. And so that would be problematic if we're trying to understand the core of that organism if there was horizontal gene flow. And so ribosomal genes are also good because they don't do that. If they did, they wouldn't be, you know, the, they wouldn't be the poster child, if you will, for trying to understand uh, uh, population genetics in these microbial uh, communities. And finally, I have to give a little plug. There's this uh, place at Michigan State called the Ribosomal Database Project. We're up to release 10 now. Uh, I actually uh, helped get this going in the first couple of releases when I worked out there. Uh, but they have over two million sequences now. And the nice thing is, is we can go back in and compare, say you go out and you go to your favorite, in my case, hydrothermal vent, you find a new organism, you can go to this database and, and basically interrogate the data in that database, and it will then tell you how your sequence is related to all those other sequences. So you can find out really on the, on the big tree of life, as we like to think of it, where your organism sits. So we can also, basically what that translates into is we can tell the relatedness of our populations of interest. We can also tell the relative abundance. So it's a numbers game as well as who's related to whom in, 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 uh, when, we, when we look at these type of name tag genes. All right, so that being said, uh, what I like to do, and this is where I get a little more specialized, at least into some of the molecular techniques that I use, but what I like to do is use a specific technique that's, uh, basically it's a DNA fingerprinting technique. And we use, uh, yeah, here's our collecting a sample up here. We use some polymerase chain reaction uh, fluorescently tagged sequences. If you want to go into some of the more details on that, come talk to me afterwards. But basically what this translates into is a quick and relatively inexpensive way to go through and do a survey of the different populations in a, in a community that you're interested in. And what it does is each of these peaks basically translates into different populations in the community. So it gives us a way to scan those barcodes and really understand what their relative abundances are. And this is a little more about how we have to do a couple of different treatments in order to get the full picture. But the long and the short of it is, we wind up seeing uh, 95 to 99% of the diversity in these samples with this particular DNA uh, fingerprinting type of technique. All right, so enough about the techniques. Here's some data. Uh, this is a particular hydrothermal vent site that we uh, went to uh, in the uh, Mariana Arc in 2004. It's a relatively simple community. Uh, hopefully you get that now. It's got one peak, maybe some little ones here, but one major peak. And it's basically one population. So it's almost like you can call this a monoculture uh, that lives at this particular site. When we went back a couple years later, this site had actually cooled down a little bit. It shifted from nearly 60 degrees C to about room temperature, 25 degrees C. And we saw a shift in the community. Okay. And then when we went back again, actually this is another site, but we went back to this iceberg site again in 2009. Uh, that was after we published this figure. But we saw the same trend is that it went to these cooler ones. And so, 
yeah, we can follow the the changes in the community, which that's kind of nice, but we also know from their, from their ribosomal genes what it is they're up to. We know that these are high temperature sulfur oxidizers uh, and possibly even using uh, uh, hydrogen off of the metabolic menu. Uh, we know that these ones are lower temperature, that they oxidize sulfur in a, in a different metabolic pathway, uh, but it, it's still basically the same result, and that we went from these higher temperature ones to the lower temperature ones, and that we can use our DNA fingerprinting tool to follow that, both in space and time. So that really told us that this was indeed a very useful tool to try to understand the microbial ecology of these systems. Ah, here's a busy slide. Um, now, remember when I referred to uh, the diversity on uh, 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 di divergent plate boundaries? Well, here's a convergent plate boundary site that we studied, and this little wedge encompasses all the diversity that we saw at that site. Here's a hotspot volcano. This is actually out off of the big island of Hawaii. Uh, this is all the diversity that that whole hydrothermal vent system encompasses. This is the Mariana Arc, Island Arc system, and this is the diversity that those hydrothermal vent systems encompass. I think you can agree now, without going into a lot more detail than that, there's a lot more diversity along the Mariana Arc than there are at these, these ridge axes or hotspot volcano types of systems where the geology is much more homogeneous. That's what we found out, and that's what we were able to show a few years ago using this uh, T-Riflip uh, technique. Uh, and it, it was very exciting, at least to me. Hopefully I can convince you it was exciting too. But uh, because these data actually got used uh, by the federal government to justify, along with other data, it wasn't the only reason they decided to do it. Uh, but they made the whole uh, area out there a national monument. They couldn't make it a park because Guam is not a state, it's a territory. So they made, but they did make it a national monument so that it could be protected uh, from overfishing and whatnot. Uh, both the Mariana uh, Trench, which is deep, that's a whole other habitat for a whole other day we could talk about that, but also the Island Arc where we find all these different hydrothermal vents that look like this. And here's some of the different groups we saw. These ones, and I should point out, even though we saw all that incredible diversity in these systems, we still found that, in general, they fit into one of three categories. They were either iron oxidizing or iron cycling types of systems, they were sulfur uh, cycling types of systems, or the one in the middle, this is where we start to get our heterotrophs, or the ones that do feed on carbon growing, that are living as basically another step in the food chain um, off of these what we call primary producers. This is secondary production. They're using the, the carbon that was fixed by the primary producers, and now they're able to grow off of those microbial mats. So a third category that we can fit uh, these different vent systems into. And so that was pretty exciting that amongst all that diversity, we still were seeing some, some patterns in there that told us something about what was going on relative to the metabolic menu. All right, so that brings us up to iron systems. That's what I've been studying a lot lately. And also that myself and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, David Emerson, 
uh, discovered a new class of zeta proteobacteria. You might go, oh, gee, okay, zeta proteobacteria, that sounds all nice and good. Uh, uh, but just to give you an example, uh, mammals are a class uh, in the phylum of the vertebrate. Uh, so I'm not saying we discovered mammals, but it's on that same level. Okay, I know when you're talking microbiology, the names don't sound quite as cool or it's harder to relate to them. Uh, but in honesty, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting to be able to find a whole new class. Uh, anyway, so you'll just have to believe me on that one. But here's just some of the laundry list of what they do. And really, to cut to the chase on this, uh, what they do is they're able to oxidize iron uh, at nearly neutral pHs. And up until we discovered these guys, uh, we actually had a lot of resistance because a lot of the thinking uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we first started thinking we were seeing something very different, was is that you could only oxidize iron in very acidic places, places like acid mine tailings, uh, something along those lines. Uh, only then would the electrons be where that, that, that slide I showed you with the, with the uh, redox couples, only then would there be enough energy to make some ATP so these cells could grow. Well, we were claiming it was basically something that was heresy at the time, that no, these guys could do it at nearly normal pHs, and they do it quite fine. And since then, we've showed that they can do it, uh, and we found them mostly at hydrothermal vents, but we're actually starting to find them at some other places. But here's what they look like. Uh, it's kind of like a kidney bean up here, and then it has this big, long, ribbony tail. And they actually take what they're doing there is they're taking some of their carbohydrates they put it out like little jets. They kind of spew it out behind them, and the iron oxidizes in that tail. And so what they do this for is so that they don't get entrapped. Because they have to process so much material, uh, a normal bacterium would just imprison itself. It would be like putting up iron bars all around itself, and it couldn't grow. It would be trapped. Well, these guys produce, they, they spew out these tails, and there's a couple other morphologies I could go into, but they have to have some kind of trick, if you will, some kind of technique to, to move all that material that they have to process, all that what we call substrate, away from them so that they can then still grow. And in this case, it's dividing right there. Here's one that's by itself over here. And here's a, what we, this is another, uh, this is a TEM, or transmission electron micrograph. Uh, this is just of the tail. So the cells have been broken off in this particular uh, preparation. But you can see the ridges yeah, uh, that uh, these iron oxides are forming. It's like, yeah, this would normally be the bars of their jail cell if they didn't somehow get the cell away from them. And then just to show that, yeah, we can see uh, the cells on the ends of those, this is a different type of microscopic technique where we light the cells up uh, with fluorescent probes, and here's some of our zeta proteobacteria on the ends of those streamers. Okay, and oh, and I threw one more in there. This is something very new and, and relatively exciting. Uh, one of my former students is actually working on it, uh, and that's where you can actually grow them. This is our type strain, Mara profundus, up here. 
You can grow them on electrodes, and the cool thing here is is that you can feed them electrons directly. They don't make the tails. They don't need to make the tails. They don't even need to oxidize the iron anymore because we've got an electrode and we're giving them, you know, it's like here's some free food uh, straight from an electrode. So we're really excited now because in the past we've had to separate those cells out away from all that iron oxide. Uh, we call that uh, ferry hydroxides. Uh, now we can just grow the cells just like it was E. coli or something like that. So it's pretty exciting to us. Anyway, so to bring this back to ocean drilling and some of the other things that we like to do in my laboratory, we did a survey uh, a couple of years ago, um, really trying to understand, now that we knew, okay, we knew the different types of metabolic menus that were out there in the ocean, we really sort of dug in and started to try to tease apart what was going on with these zeta proteobacteria, since we discovered them, and, and try to understand how they do their iron oxidation in all these different places. Uh, so these are a number of places, not just where we studied, but where also other people have studied. Uh, here's over in the Red Sea. Here's our drill site over there in Okinawa. I'll come back to again. But we did this survey and we found out that lo and behold, yes, there is some biogeography involved with the zeta proteobacteria. That some of the populations are what we call cosmopolitan, or they can be found everywhere. Here's a simple diagram talking about that. That's where this is what we call a Venn diagram. And again, it's these sets and, and subsets kind of an idea. But some of the populations are found everywhere. Some of the populations are only found in specific regions or maybe even only in specific sites, and we call those endemic. And that was, you know, as a, I like to wear my ecology hat first and foremost. As an ecologist, that was really exciting to us. Uh, we did a phylogenetic tree, and I realize you can't, you know, I, I, always, I always tell my students, don't put trees in your talks. It's the death of a talk. Nobody can read them, and that's why I did this. Anyway. But the point of this is, is that there's actually two species, we call them OTUs for technical reasons, but there's two species of bacteria that are specific to the subsurface. So when we did our survey, we discovered that as well, that these two happens to be 9 and 15 because we haven't named them yet. This, this is so new. But there's a couple of, of species of our iron oxidizers that are only found in the subsurface, and we have no idea why. We, and uh, we want to know why, but in all honesty, we don't know why yet. We just know they exist there. And so that brings us up to Expedition 331, back to the deep hot biosphere, why we were highly motivated to go on this, even though it was an uh, uh, opportunity to, do, to study carbon cycling. We went out there really wanting to study iron cycling. And these are some of our enrichment cultures, both uh, microaerophilic, where we give them a little bit of oxygen, and anaerobic, where uh, uh, they're given nitrate. They're basically breathing nitrate instead. Uh, anyway, just to show that we could grow them. And here's some uh, micrographs, again, showing you different techniques uh, that we could grow them. Uh, here, yeah, this one's actually a little better, but this is the same slide, both in uh, what we call uh, phase contrast and epifluorescence over here. Anyhow, and so we can grow these things. We found them. This is a cross-section of the cores that we were able to bring back up off the bottom of the ocean. What they do when they collect these drilling cores is after the microbiologists get their cut, 
That's where the white divots are out of here. Then they cut them open and they study their physical properties. They study their geology and all of that. So that's what's going on. The stars in here are where we found a high abundance of our zeta proteobacteria. Uh, yeah, so, and we used a uh, different technique, a different molecular technique called quantitative PCR in order to do that. Uh, but we found really high levels in these three samples. So we knew we were on to something. So this is another busy slide. Basically, this is the three samples to show that we did cell counts, what the actual core sample name was over there. Uh, but this is the relative we found is somewhere between 12 and 14% of zeta proteobacteria, which is a pretty good chunk of the overall microbial community uh, uh, down in the subsurface. Okay, so we did that. Now this brings us up to where our samples are. Back again, I want you to think about this spatially for a second and what this translates into. We found zeta proteobacteria over at this sample, the furthest away on the one side uh, actually, this was to the uh, uh, west of the hot spot. This is where the, the hot springs was, was at its hottest. It was over 300 degrees C where that temperature was coming out. Way too hot to support uh, iron oxidation uh, on our menu. But on the edges, we found them also over here at down to almost 30 meters deep. And the cool thing about this is, is that we know from the from the flow, remember I told you about the rivers underneath the ground there, that this was an influx of cold seawater, and this is an outflux of diffusive venting over here, so we have two very different regimes. I'm hopeful that we might even be able to find some differences in our representative zetas, uh, because we have two different, even though they're subsurface habitats, even though they contain very specific populations of zeta proteobacteria, here we have two very different types uh, in terms of the flow in and around this system. All right, so what is our conclusions to all of this? Well, we certainly know that we have regional differences. We certainly know that we have habitat differences. Uh, we really know that if we want to really understand the physiology of these things, we have to do a better job culturing. That's where those electrodes come in because we can use those to enrich our zetas right out of the environment. You can actually tune your electrode to a different voltage and, and select for iron oxidizers, say. So we're pretty excited about that. And we also know that uh, we could be, we, we may have to look at some different regions, uh, some more environments in order to compare, try to see if the Okinawa trough is the same as the other subsurface samples that we saw over by the Mariana. So that's really sort of looking to the future. But what we're doing right now is we've taken those samples that we know are high in zetas, our three hot spots. Uh, we've done a, another sort of brand new cutting edge technique where we can float the cells out of the sediment. So there's the cells up there, there's the sediment, there are the mineral particles down there. And so we can just get those cells. And that allows us to do something else that's really cool uh, that only a few people have done lately. Uh, basically, this is uh, flow cytometry data. I know it's kind of busy. It looks like shooting stars and whatnot. What this is is the sediments and then the cells over here. And we're showing that we can separate those two and we can just get the cells. And with a flow cytometer, this is a device that allows us to capture one of those cells in a little tiny droplet 
and put that little droplet in its own little test tube uh, so that we can, we can sort individual cells out of the sample uh, of these communities that we get out of the subsurface. And that's what, exactly what we did over here. We actually concentrated some of the cells you can see, yeah, there's a lot of junk in the background here, a lot of, of uh, really of the hydrothermal materials, uh, sediments and whatnot, minerals, minerals that come up in the sample with it and the cells. Here we have, oh, there might be a few things that don't stain in there, but we got rid of most of that, and so now we can really sort just cells, and that's one of the tricks that's been a problem of being able to sort with this from subsurface samples for some time. If you go out into the ocean, you can do this. This is uh, this is what oceanographers have been doing up in the up in the upper oceans for years. Uh, it's only recently that we've adapted this, come up with this uh, cell separation technique, so that we can do it uh, from the uh, the deep subsurface and try to understand what's going on down there. But the rest of the story, this is actually going on right now uh, out on uh, Bigelow Labs. They have a center for what's called single cell genomics. So now that we can sort that single cell, we can go back in, <coughs> excuse me, with what's called a MDA or multiple displacement amplification. It's a fancy, it's a different type of polymerase chain reaction. We actually take advantage of, uh, of a viral uh, DNA polymerase, basically the gene or the, the protein that copies DNA. It will go in and take our, our uh, genome from the single cell and make copies of it. And then we can put that all into an assembly over here, and, and we, can, we can sequence that organism's entire genome using this virally mediated uh, MDA amplification technique, which is brand new and cutting edge. And, and if you want to know more about that, I can tell you afterwards too. But this is what's really exciting, is we've gone from discovering a new class, we found that there's populations of that class that are specific to the subsurface. And now we're just about to get, in another week or two, I anticipate being able to see that we got positive results from our MDA reaction. We're able to get the entire genomes. And that'll give us a better picture of what these guys are doing down in the deep subsurface. So that's where we're at, at least with this story. I think it's pretty exciting at least, but it's still, there's more of the story, which is always the case with science. But there's still more of the story to be figured out. But that's what we're on the, on the brink of right now, is trying to understand the genomics of these very special iron oxidizers that only seem to exist in the subsurface. And then I also wanted to take just a minute and show you, yeah, here's the GQ that I mentioned early on. It is huge. It's like aircraft carrier size ship. You don't often get to go out on scientific operations of this magnitude. Uh, and this is over 200 feet high. This is the derrick that they use to uh, lower the drilling uh, strand down. They actually lower all this pipe with a drill head on the end of it in order to bring those core samples back up for us uh, off of the bottom of the ocean. And here's where I climbed up. I'm actually up on this deck up here looking out. There's the, there's the helipad that's there over here and we're looking out. And one thing that, you know, I've been going to sea for some time now and one thing that caught me really by surprise is when I did this, when you get that high up off of the ocean, uh, when you're out at sea, you can actually see, you can kind of see it in this picture. I should have done one of those panographic uh, shots, but the curvature of the Earth. 
you really, you don't see it when you're down low because you only see about 12, maybe 15 miles out. But when you get a couple hundred feet up and you're seeing more like 40 to 50 miles out to the horizon, you start to see the curvature of the earth and you realize you live on a little tiny ball. Uh, yeah, and, and it's quite humbling. It really is. So uh, I got to learn a lot about the planet. Well, I was not just about iron oxidizers, but also what a little tiny ball that it is we live on uh, getting to go out on the GQ. Uh, and then just, yeah, here's, uh, here's our group. I like to wear orange when I'm out there because that's what the iron oxidizers do. So yeah. I always take the chance to show off with the orange. Here's our chief scientist down here, Ken Takai and Mike Model over there. So they were the ones running the show, even though well, I'm running around saying, more iron, please. Uh, anyhow. Uh, and oh, I have to also acknowledge uh, Ocean Leadership and IODP that make this possible. Uh, certainly National Science Foundation. Uh, I've received some funding from what's called CDEBI. It's the Center for Dark Energy uh, Biosphere Investigations. It's over it's, uh, at USC. Uh, I've also received some from my home institution, Western Washington. And here's a shot of uh, the folks that work in my lab over here. Uh, I've got a number of undergraduates. Uh, uh, Kevin right there, that's, that's him right there. Uh, and a number of graduate students as well uh, that uh, work in the lab. And I couldn't do any of this stuff without their help. So, oh, and I think just to sh finish up, I got a couple of minutes, I think. Uh, I also wanted to show you, yeah, okay, here's a drill head. Uh, at the beginning when we start to drill down into a hydrothermal vent site, for example. These things cost $5,000. And of course, that's, I, I hate to say that that's uh, nickels and dimes, it's not, but that's a tiny bit of what it costs to go out and spend a day out drilling. But here's at the beginning of the day. Here's, yeah, and here's after we've used it just for a short period of time, they had to bring it back up uh, for some of the technical reasons. But there's where it's been down uh, just drilling for a little bit and then actually here's what it looks like at the end of the drilling where we're done. It doesn't work anymore. So that's the end of our, of our drill head right there. So anyhow, I like to show that off too because that's the business end of what goes down and grinds it out to get us our samples uh, when we're doing this. So with that, I'll be glad to take any questions that you might have. Oh boy, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, uh, drilling legs last for anywhere from, no, oh, I'd say a month on the short end to upwards to three months. That's about the longest they are. So it's a big commitment to go out to see for that long. It's probably one of the, uh, it's certainly, yes, the, the longest uh, oceanographic cruises that I've ever been on. Uh, normally when we go out, uh, we're, it's only for maybe a week or two, but these, because it's such a big operation, they go out, they park the ship, they actually have to use global positioning uh, to keep the ship very steady while they lower that drill string down. Yeah, it, you're there for a little while. <laughs> yes? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's just this last year too. They've actually, they've been doing it, um, in Derek Lovely's lab out in Massachusetts at, at, at UMass, 
for a few years with a different kind of bacterium, with a geobacter. It was only uh, in the last year that we figured out we could tune these things to different voltages and, and basically dial in different redox couples off of the menu. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. If I was that's you know that's a very common question I get a lot. Uh bacteria are very resilient. Uh even ones that are we call hyperthermophiles, you can chill them down for a while and they and they won't grow, but it's sort of like you're putting them to sleep. They go dormant. Uh it's the same with pressure. And pressure even less so. Pressure only becomes a uh, serious factor when you're down at like 6,000 meters, when you're down at the deepest parts of the ocean, like the Mariana Trench. Then I would care a lot more about pressure. We're drilling into the tops of the mountains on the bottom of the ocean. So we're, yeah, I know it's, it's sort of backwards there, but... But that's the way I think of it is that we're drilling into the tops of seamounts or submarine volcanoes. Uh, and so we're only, yeah, only, uh, for the Okinawa trough, we were about 2,000 meters deep. So 2,000 meters for a bacterium is nothing, next to nothing. Yeah, they really don't have a, a problem with pressure. But it is a concern. And it's certainly when, when they first started thinking about hydrothermal vents, uh, and, and, uh, well, and, and marine microbiology, uh, pressure was certainly, uh, thought to be a lot bigger of an impactor, uh, because there are what are called obligate barophiles, or some people have even gotten fancy and call them obligate pesiophiles now. Uh, anyway, uh, but, uh, yeah, those do happen, but they only get them from really, really deep. Anybody else? All right. Well, thanks for coming today. We want to thank Dr. Moyer and on behalf of Santa Monica College and the college associates, we want to present you with a little speaker gift for your iPad. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you.